Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. We are recording. Nice hot day out there, isn't it? They're all hot days. <laughs> They're all hot days. All hot days. So we have hot topics here on 27 Speaks. So um, hope everyone's doing well out there. And um, on the record button again this week is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us today is Joe Shaw. Hey, Joe. Hey, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And Brendan O'Reilly is back again. Hiya, Brendan. Hi, I'm Brendan. I'm the deputy managing editor. And we also have Catherine G. Manu, a.k.a. Georgie. Good morning, Annette. I'm Georgie. I'm the publisher of the Express News Group. Wow, this is a big group. It's a, it's a full screen. <laughs> it is a big group, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> so I'm Annette Hagel. I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us today is our esteemed reporter, Stephen Coates. Hey, Steve. Greetings. How are you? Jeez, a lot of energy there. <laughs> and, and also with us today are two special guests. And we have Brian Polite from the Shinnecock Nation, who's the uh, the chairman of the nation. How are you, Brian? Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I got your title right, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. And we also have Shanae Bullock. And Shanae is the um, managing director of Little Beach Harvest, right? Is that the name of the, the new dispensary? Yes, it's the name of the tribal cannabis business. So as you might have guessed, we're going to talk about some of the news coming out of the Shinnecock Nation. And I'll let Joe, you or Steve jump in here. It's up to you, Steve. I'm, I'm, I'm happy Go to ahead. pick up on your... <laughs> Shanae, maybe we can start with Shanae. Uh, because just recently, um, you broke ground on the dispensary. And I believe it's a $5 million project and about 5,000 square feet. It's going to be a big big project. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about um, what the dispensary, what do you envision the business being? I, I know it started out as a medical uh, dispensary, but now that the state has legalized cannabis, you are going to be offering cannabis uh, for recreational use as well, correct? So I want to answer the first part of your question about the vision. Um, so I would just want to say um, to Boutne for having me on here um, as a young business leader for our entire nation. But it's also a great honor to have our, our chairman, Brian Polite, um, who is kind of equivalent to the governor or the president. So it's a big honor to have him um, on this interview and me be alongside of him. Um, so as far as the vision for the tribal business, um, it's really to be able to generate um, economic sustainability for our community, which has been long oppressed um, for almost 400 years. And we are, we might be a very small tribe kind of tucked off into the neck, but we are very strong and mighty. And it's really, it's an honor to be able to lead such a charge and to have so much support from our tribal leadership um, and our elders and our young people and even um, people outside. Um, so for the community, yes, definitely economic sustainability, but tremendous amount of healing and education 
um, internally that would be provided to our own community, but even externally. Um, a lot of people look to us sometimes for a lot of answers to how to deal with mental health, holistic practices, all of these kind of things. Um, Native Americans for a long time were looked at as novelty or motif or some fantasy uh, when it comes to that whole area of holistic uh, education. But now we're seeing in 2022 that there's a big demand for it. Um, so I really am super excited to be able to have, you know, this dispensary as really that gateway to that all, whole entire kind of communication with our tribe in regards to um, holistic use of cannabis, not only cannabis, but many of other regulated um, plant medicines that we've been foraging and growing for thousands of years. Um, but also to be able to have jobs that are created for the tribe. Um, you not, not just jobs, I would like to say career. One of the things that I spoke about at Groundbreaking was how we were able to even just right there do business to business with tribal entrepreneurs that have their own businesses from um, 3D, um, 5D Productions Company is owned by a tribal member that has his own production company. So he handled all of the production, um, even the decorator for all of the, the different beautiful curated um, plants there that was done by Sunshine Gums Designs, um, which is a business. Um, our sister tribe, has a tribal member who has a beautiful crystal business and she has different medicines. So she created all the gift bags. Um, so be able to do some of those business to business things for within the tribe already kind of creates the circular economy, but also creating careers within the business itself. Because at the end of the day, most people say mom and pop shop or a family business. This is a nation's business. That's a, that's the thing about development too, right? Is it feeds on itself and, and you can, you know, when you have one project, uh, that's the whole point is it starts to, to create more economic development. But I'm, I'm intrigued, Sinead, that, that this project came up early on in the conversation about economic development opportunities um, for the nation. But I've always had the, the impression that for you, this is, this is, less of, I mean, obviously the economic development part is a driver of this, but it's not just about economics for you. I mean, the, the, the legalization of cannabis in New York kind of came out of nowhere. This project was already in the works when that happened. You weren't like anticipating that coming necessarily. You were planning to do this as a medical dispensary. This is for you, it seems to me, a personal thing and it, and it has more to do with with the the healing part of it right i mean that, that you've been that's the message you've been delivering i think from the beginning yeah i mean i think that that's the message that the plant has also been delivering since the beginning um and i think what has kind of happened is that more and more people have begun to understand that and so they're kind of listening to people that have been speaking about that particular piece for a very long time and even just with research the amount of research that's been able to be published kind of shows that it is healing. Um, and so we, and, and our chairman could probably speak a little bit more to what was taking place way before New York was even looking at um, you know, uh, legalization um, because he, he actually kind of spearheaded uh, that 
along with other tribal members as well. But really, it's not about what's always best for New York State and what's best for New Jersey or what's best for the rest of the country. Anything that we do when it comes to business, even if it's a tree that we're going to take down or a new road that we're going to, you know, put in our own community or how we're actually going to cultivate oysters or where we're going to do that. Any kind of decision that we make, whether that's economically, um, holistically, it has to be for the betterment of the nation. And it's brought forth to the nation for the nation to vote whether this is something we want to do or not. There are things that we can do on our own without permission but that's based upon what the nation wants to do. And the nation had spoke on this, you know, early back in the <laughs> 2015, 2016. Um, I mean, the main thing is, is really just recognizing that we are a nation and we have our own laws and we govern our own selves. And I think our chairman does a great job at really bringing, you know, things to the nation and allowing the nation to choose what we want to do and carrying that out as a leader. Yeah, Brian, can you talk about that? Can you talk about sort of the early days of this conversation about how cannabis um, might be playing a role in, in the tribe's uh, economic development? Where did this start? Sure. I mean, I think it's important to note that, first of all, thank you guys for having us. It's always a pleasure to sit down and, and talk with uh, the Southampton Press and, and the news group. And so thank you guys for giving us the time this morning. Um, obviously, you guys have been covering this now. I think about a part of seven years this has been going on. We've been at this and it, the impetus of it was really uh, the coal memorandum that came out under the Obama administration, which was uh, guidance to all of the U.S. attorneys across the country um, with their how they were going to treat both states and tribes if they did go forward and legalize both recreational and medical cannabis. At the time, we were looking at medical cannabis because that's what New York State was doing. It was during a time period when New York State um, was going through the what's called the Compassionate Care Act. Um, and we looked at that. We looked at that model. And we thought that that would be something that we could uh, go forward and do, not just for economic development, but as uh, Shanae had indicated, also um, for healing purposes, as well as education, and also to kind of counter the narrative that's always been out there that this is an evil plant and it's horrible. Us as Native American and Indigenous people have always looked at the plant as something other than um, that demonization of its, you know, horrible plant. Um, so that that. That took us a long time to do our research. We met with our U.S. attorney. We met with various law enforcement agencies. We met with the governor's office, the health uh, department of health. And what we were trying to do originally is uh, enter into the medical cannabis market in New York State by getting an MOU with the Department of Health that would allow for us to verify um, the licenses that people had when it came to our um, dispensary and also uh, which we were successful in doing the next part not the first part uh, we passed a coextensive um, cannabis ordinance called the medical cannabis ordinance and that basically read just like New York State's program instead of the uh, Department of Health we had our CRD which we still have which is the cannabis regulatory division 
Um, and we were trying for years, and this is why it took so long, to do it the right way, the absolute right way, and we felt the right way was to be responsible and work with New York State, which I will give the Department of Health a lot of credit. Um, over the years, they worked very diligently with us. They kind of got stuck in what usually gets stuck in the executive branch uh, up in Albany with the Cuomo administration. He wasn't having it, basically. Um, that's just not one project. That's several projects over his um, administration where he basically gave us a cold shoulder. So when we got new partners, um, not new partners, it got reinvigorated because it was a lag where the project went cold for two years. Um, back in 2019, we uh, came back to the table. We hired our, our very talented Miss um, uh, Sinead Bullock as our managing director. And that's really when it started picking up speed. Um, again, uh, we went back to the Department of Health just to say, hey, we're still here. Uh, we made some changes to our ordinances. New York State made changes to theirs. Um, and then it really, really started to pick up speed when we brought in Tilt as our partner. Um, I, I'm not going to speak for Sinead, but they have been amazing um, for the Shinnecock Nation. Not only have they taken the time to realize um, who we are and do a lot of research on that front, they are in the industry leaders and innovators. Um, they're multi-state operators, so they come with the wherewithal, the know-how, uh, the SOPs, everything. It's like, a, you know, it really is a blessing um, that they came when they did. At a time where the project was paused because of the pandemic and because of a lot of financing issues um, at the time. Now, this was at the height, as you guys recall, of COVID when, you know, the economy went off a cliff, basically. So there was a lot of false starts, unfortunately, in the past. And But, you know, Shinnecock was resilient, so... This project, I like to say, is indicative of who we are. We're very resilient and we'll stick at it and we'll get it done. So basically, just to clarify, Tilt, Tilt is the organization or a company that, that builds dispensaries and works with um, different organizations um, throughout the country. And they sort of know how to do the business end of it, I'm guessing, the building and the financing. They actually right? run. Tilt is an actually a publicly traded company. Um, mm -hmm. They're a multi-state operator. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, they, they actually own and operate several dispensaries and grow operations throughout the United States. I wonder, could you explain a little bit about the role of Connor Green? I've never gotten that, understood that fully. Sure. So Connor Green uh, has, was the original, um, still is our business partner, and they came in and actually did... Um, a lot of the legwork or the help us um, get connected to certain people. So they basically came in uh, with the know, uh, with the kind of the inside knowledge of uh, the emerging cannabis market at the time. Um, they helped us link. Um, I can't go into the company because I'm not really supposed to talk about our prior business partner. So, um, but they helped us link with uh, several business partners over the years uh, to get this going, both on the cultivation side, as well as the political side, they came with a political strategy. Um, so when we first did this, we put out an RFP. There was about 10 companies back in 2015 that we interviewed. And we went with Connor Green because they were the only ones who really had a responsible plan. A lot of the other companies were like, oh, you could just do what you want. You guys are sovereign. And a lot of, uh, back then, a lot of this law wasn't settled, and it was kind of like the Wild Wild West, and everybody was just trying to feel out what they could do on Native territory, and a lot of the people were like, well, you guys could do whatever you want, and obviously, I'm not a proponent of just because you can, you should. 
Um, and that was one of the things that I really respected about Conor Green. They came um, with the let's go to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Let's work with the you know Department of Health. Let's do this in the right way. Let's make a law that's coextensive. Let's be responsible. Let's get lab tested. Um, so they really helped us develop the strategy, and they've been great. Um, Todd Bergeron has been with us now for the last seven years, and that's how long it's it's taken uh, to get to get this project where it is today. So they've been an invaluable, invaluable partner. Okay, Brian, can you just explain the the relationship between the the, the tribe and and New York State, and I guess the federal government on on this too? I mean, you're not necessarily bound by, um, by, by state and, or, or, or federal laws, but you guys have, have always maintained that you wanted to, as you said, work, work in a parallel way with, with those laws. How does, how does that work? So that's kind of, uh, there's two, there's two kinds of dynamics going on when you're dealing with, uh, native laws and state laws and then the feds. So, uh, the federal government obviously is still a schedule one drug. It's still illegal, um, and, and again, a Schedule One drug classification makes it very uh, legally precarious to engage in. Um, one of the things that the Constitution lays out of the uh, amendment is the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, equal protection under the law. So, what we try to do and try to do constantly, um, because we're we're a federally funded tribe with a lot of federal grants. So, the way that that would work is that. It's, it would behoove any tribe, especially ours, to pass something that's coextensive with their state government because if the feds aren't coming after funding for the state and the state is going forward with the cannabis program, then under the 14th Amendment, equal protection on the law, we're allowed to do the same thing as long as we're doing it within the same guidelines as New York State. Now, that's not to say that we have to abide by New York State laws, but we can pass laws that are in line with their laws without you know, actually saying we're under New York state law, we're under Shinnecock law. And there are minor differences because we're not a giant, you know, 24 million population, uh, you know, empire state. Um, we're 1600 tribal members out here. So there are some differences. So we have been in contact with both New York state and the feds over the years on this one. Um, the U.S. attorney's office, when we met with them, um, the newest U.S. attorney, I think his name is Mr. Peace. Um, we have not we have not gone into in depth as we have with prior U.S. attorneys, but he's new. Um, but we have met with them. They have copies of our laws. Um, and with the OCM, we've met with the OCM several times as well, which is the Office of Cannabis Management, which is now the new entity that takes the lead when it comes to cannabis in New York State. Um, so, you know, we've been meeting with 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 both the feds and the state. And uh, as, as far as I'm concerned with it is both entities have. And again, they can't the state can give some kind of a hey, that that sounds good. The feds aren't allowed to say, yeah, that's great. Go do this, because, again, it, it's contrary to federal law. Um, but I will say that through, you know, communication, they, they did lay out that we have a very responsible uh, program on paper. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com
27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. Shanae, I, I wanted to ask a logistical question. Um, so you broke ground on the dispensary, and I believe uh, Steve's article said that you're hoping to have the dispensary open next year, right? In 2023, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, and you also have a grow operation that's going to be part of, of, what, of the whole project, but that's still to come, correct? Yes. So, so where do you get product next year before you start growing? Because as I understand it, this is one of the real limitations that it's still illegal to transport cannabis across state lines, right? And I'm curious whether the, the tribal line complicates that even further. Or what, how does that work? Where, where would you get product if you open next year and don't have your own grow operation on site? So one of the awesome things um, about who we are as Shinnecock people is that we've been doing intertribal trade for almost, we taught the settlers how to do trade and they learned our own trade routes. Those very same highways historically usually were running routes between tribes. You look at Highway 95, 85, Route 44 out in um, Massachusetts, uh, even Route 27. Um, these were all um, footpaths that we traveled to. They said your average indigenous person could travel on foot for 44 miles in a day between their village and another village. So we were able to do that. Plus we're boating people. So we still recognize those ancient highways. Um, and we will still use those ancient highways, just like, as we always have done. We have, um, with the can Shinnecock Cannabis Regulatory Division, the licenses that will be distributed, you'll have a registered tribal operation, which will be Little Beach Harvest, but tribal members will also have an actual license. So just like I mentioned, as far as the circular economy, there will be able to be business to business between Little Beach Harvest and other tribal members on Shinnecock that will have an actual legal license issued by the Shinnecock uh, Cannabis Regulatory Division known as SCRD, um, which essentially it kind of mirrors the OCM, but within this, uh, the, the nation. Now, whether or not those ancient trade routes are considered legal or not, it's still our laws that deem them as legal. Right. And if there is a treaty or an agreement between nation to nation with our nation in any other nation, it makes those ancient highways legal. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, there is still I think I, I mentioned it and Brian can probably speak a little bit more on it. But that's where those agreements between our nation and state are had so that way there is an agreement that they recognize our laws, they recognize us as a nation and they recognize our use of exercising our rights to be able to, to use those. I mean, the very same 
areas that we're talking about traded wampum from those same ancient highways. And, and they're still trading very similar goods that we taught, whether that was fish, shellfish, um, furs, um, all of these things are a big, huge um, commodity and product today that we still have difficulty entering in the industries that we've actually, um, you know, we've been a part of. So there are so many different various ways that we are legally able to grow um, and, and trade um, for any type of, um, you know, materials or seeds or anything um, on Shinnecock because it's legal underneath our laws. And that agreement is something that our nation is, um, you know, in, in, in communication right now with the state of New York on. So I guess, you know, my question is, are there a lot of other um, nations throughout New York state and even the country who are growing cannabis? Like, is that a, is a other, are other nations a, a, a logical source for you to go to in getting your um, medicinal can cannabis um, in the next early part of the next year? Yeah, so I just kind of want to piggyback on what uh, Shanae was talking about with first uh, uh, right here on Shinnecock with uh, some of the cultivator licenses that we're going to be distributing shortly. We've been working for a while now on our regulations for uh, both medical and recreational licenses, not just to little beach harvest, but to tribal members. So that will be a great source because uh, we have some very talented cultivators up here that can augment our program prior to us getting our massive, and I say massive, not sparingly, uh, pretty big cultivation facility uh, up and running. But as Shanae had indicated, there are several tribes uh, throughout New York State that are now currently engaged um, in the cultivation. And we have had meetings with uh, tribal leadership throughout the state trying to work on a um, treaty, MOU, something of that nature, um, to reestablish uh, what Shanae was talking about, um, to let everybody know that we're all these tribes are still here and we're trading in. Um, cannabis was one of the things that we talked about and getting into some kind of treaty with the other tribes. And also we've had conversations with New York State basically telling them to back off um, these rights that we have inherently with our trade. Um, so let us, you know, uh, do our trade from tribe to tribe unencumbered. When you're talking about state lines, I'm a person who errs on the side of caution. Um, that is something um, that Shinnecock will not engage in until the federal um, laws are changed. Um, but uh, in state, yeah, we have an inherent right um, to trade between tribes and as, uh, if that's cannabis or if that's tobacco, if it's wampum, if it's sea bat, if it's anything, um, we have the right to do that unencumbered from New York state regulations, even if we're using New York state roads. And that is something that we talked with OCM about as well. One of the other aspects um, is working with OCM. And this is, this is definitely not short term, this is a long term, is that so that our business, both Little Beach Harbors and our tribal members, because we will have testing laboratories, will be able to do business with um, the other registered organizations throughout New York State as well. So um, you, you guys talked about um, li licensing with, with local businesses, and you, I guess you're talking about cultivation. Does Is that going to include retail? And have any of those retail licenses been, been issued already? I've heard that some of the smoke shops may be um, 
maybe may marketing, you know, cannabis at, at this point. And I didn't know if that was something that was um, authorized by by the nation uh, at this point or or what? No, it's not authorized by the nation. Um, the Shinnecock Nation maintains, and we've sent letters, and we've said this, is that the only current uh, company or business that's that's licensed to do any kind of cannabis is Little Beach Harvest. Now, uh, I have gotten pushback from people who are like, well, you know, these stores, there's I'm going to say this, it's very difficult, um, just like the uh, mayor of New York City is dealing with it, and people throughout Long Island are dealing with it. They took the genie out of the bottle, and it's very difficult to put it back in there. So sure. we're trying to race to get these regulations in place because it's very difficult to stop people right now when you have all these mixed messages coming from law enforcement and state officials basically saying that they're not going to intervene if they're selling it at the gas station in Riverhead or in New York City. Um, so we maintain that if we do catch anybody um, unlicensed cigarettes with any other violations or tribal law, it will be dealt with. But I can tell you unequivocally that we have not licensed anybody and any sales that uh, are being done um, are not in line with tribal law. Okay. But Brian, I'm curious, do you see a future where the smoke shops will all be selling cannabis as well? Well, that's something that we're working on internally. I really can't, you know, get in front of my skis on that one because uh, it's something that we're working on. I can tell you that from the framework that we passed back in February with the tribe, I mean, back in the fall with the tribe, they there were two-part questions. Did you want a license uh, recreational for Little Beach Harvest? Overwhelming yes. And then the second one, licensing individuals uh, for the same thing. Also, yes, just a little bit closer on the margins. Um, so we're still working that out. Um, and if we do move forward in that uh, direction, um, obviously it would have to be well-regulated and that's some of the issues that we're working out internally with our regulations. Hi, this is Ellen Diogardi. I'm the director of events for the Express News Group. I'm also the president of the Sag Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Community really matters to all of us at this company. I know it's a good part of why I'm here. We've hosted more than 50 of our Express Sessions events in Southampton, East Hampton, and Sag Harbor, focusing on issues that matter most to residents of the East End. We bring the most important government and community leaders and topic experts together in one room, and we often find answers to complicated questions, and we grow stronger together. This all takes staff time and company resources, but it's our job, and I'm happy to say we really love our work. But we can't do it without our subscribers. If this kind of community work is important to you, you can support it by becoming a subscriber. To subscribe, visit 27east.com slash subscribe. And thank you. So I wonder, do we want to, um, do either uh, Shanae, you or Brian want to describe what the facility itself is going to look like um, and give us a little physical description of what the, um, what the final building will, will look like? Sure. So if, if anybody goes to www.littlebeachharvest.com, there are some really beautiful renderings. Um, so, and the awesome thing about this project is it's not just, you know, we, we have others outside of Shinnecock that are a big part of making this happen. Again, Connor Green, um, Tilt Holdings, um, but we also have TR Studios, which is a local um, architect firm out there in Southampton. And they have actually been a big part of this project pre-pandemic. They've held it through, through the pandemic. And it's their renderings that they have kind of created that you'll see on the website. Um, but they've worked very closely with us to really understand 
well, I'm gonna say that they don't, they don't, they know fully who they are, we are, but they've been neighbors with us for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have an understanding and appreciation of the environment, just like we do. Um, and so inside of the renderings, that's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see the beauty of the environment. Um, we're gonna try to make everything as green as we can and um, environmentally friendly as we can. Um, but also be able to withstand the elements. Um, that's something that we had early on um, in discussion. Um, as far as design, we've had it with leadership. We've had it with tribal members because um, we've been there way before anybody else has. And we've seen many storms come and go. We've lost several tribal members over the years, specifically to Hurricane 38. Um, so anything that we build um, going forward, especially on this magnitude of development, we wanna make sure that um, it can withstand those elements, especially when we're dealing with climate change and things like that. So those are the different type of conversations that we had early on. And so the structure that you're gonna see really will be able to um, remain in the future. Um, so the, the goal is to be able to have our dispensary that will be built first. Um, this dispensary is about 5,000 square feet. Um, it'll have a downstairs really for more where the customers are. Um, and then it'll have a kind of like a lofted uh, upstairs for office and conferences spaces. So there'll be a lot of light coming in on the top there. But one of the things that we're also making sure is that our dispensary, um, uh, you know, since we do have a cannabis regulatory division, that it's in compliance. You know, there it's a highly regulated business. We're not just going to open up some store and throw cannabis in it. I mean, everything down to a T, to where the vault is, to the security, to how many, um, uh, you know, um, cash wraps you have, to storage, um, to inventory, to, you know, just the flow of the floor itself. Um, the security when you walk in, the bathrooms, all of those kind of things. I mean, every single like corner in square footage has really been heavily thought about. Um, and even to the branding of Little Beach Harvest, um, we recognize that our neighbors really don't know who we are um, at all. <laughs> uh, they have an idea, um, even sometimes when you, but, but to really understand who we are. Um, and even on this level of business is important too, because this is also a new experience for people to see that we are able to meet uh, or even go above and beyond uh, a lot of criteria um, in establishing businesses of this kind. So the entire look and feel of that will really be very welcoming to people to learn and experience that. And um, so we, we just really can't wait. You know, we're really excited for it. Um, there's a lot of work that's going behind the scenes um, to make it happen. Janae, is there plans for on-site consumption and, and edibles or some, some sort of a lounge? Or is it all going to be you, you buy it there retail and you leave and consume it at home? Right. So, we'll, we'll, so the dispensary will be the 5,000 square foot um, facility that we're building. Um, and then the phase two of that will be the wellness lounge. So a lot of times I think the word lounge gets everybody super excited because we think of consumption lounge, we think this, but then there's also that wellness piece that's important to note too. This will be, I mean, cause not everybody would might wanna go into the dispensary and necessarily buy cannabis, but they might want to actually learn about it. They might want to um, kind of maybe use it. Um, and so there are hopes um, that we'll be able to, you know, 
have some sort of consumption on site. But again, that's all going to be in line with what the regulations for the tribe um, provides us. Um, but that is definitely talk about it. Um, to be able to I want to ask you both a, a, a kind of a tricky question, and, and maybe I start with Brian. You talked about tilt um, and the partnership uh, that they that they bring to this, and they're a multi-state operator. And you know, one of the narratives I've heard about the the the, the beginning of of this industry is that the multi-state operators may come in and start to take advantage of local. Um, Native American tribes and others, you know, other places. And, and to, be, to be frank with you, the, the, the Shinnecock Nation kind of went through that process from the gaming industry where there were some big operators who came in and partnered. And I think, you know, those partnerships didn't really pan out necessarily um, all that well for, for the nation. Are you worried about that at all? I mean, I, there's no way to do this without a, without a multi-state operator, right? I mean, it, you, you have to have a partner to make this work, but have you, in your dealings with Tilt, um, Brian, do you see a different sort of approach? Are you, are you confident that, that this is going to turn out better for, for the Shinnecocks? I think the devil's always in the details with any kind of contractual uh, arrangement that you make with somebody. I can tell you this about the Shinnecock Nation's uh, arrangement with Tilt is that we own 100% wholly owned the business. Um, they are coming in as uh, support, as well as financial support, intellectual property, things of that nature. But at the end of the day, Little Beach Harvest is 100% wholly owned by the nation. And that's one of the due diligence that, or that's some of the due diligence that the council and also our tribal members have a very high bar uh, when it comes to who's coming in here and how they're going to operate, especially after some of the pitfalls that we saw um, with, uh, you know, the other day. So it wouldn't even have a past, I don't believe, um, the tribe, if it wasn't wholly owned by us. And um, that's why we have our managing director as well. And she does an amazing job of keeping people accountable. Um, but again, it's those contractual details that are super important um, to ensure that this partnership um, is one uh, operated uh, and our word comes first. Um, this is Shinnecock's business. This is our land. This is our territory. This is our sovereign right. This is our future. Um, and, and Tilt has been very receptive to that. Um, but again, with any partnership, you got to keep people on their toes. But I think that we've done an amazing job of finding a good partner um, that realizes that this is this is Shinnecock's business, um, and they're here to support that. Today, you're confident uh, with Tilt working with Tilt. You've had a good experience so far. Yes, I work with them every day. Um, I think I'm probably, the, right now, I'm kind of the closest to them. Um, and, you know, from, from the very moment before we even inked the deal, right, we had, you know, some opportunity to really have them come formally and informally to Shinnecock and just give them a tour and really sit down and then also do the same um, in their facilities. Um, and I think it was, you know, the dynamics and the chemistry was, was good. And we're all humans. I think that's what we also have to recognize too. You know, you get caught up in these square boxes that were put up on us, but that's also not a part of our culture. We want to make that humanitarian connection. And if we don't feel that, then it's, it can, it, it might not work. And the thing about Tilda is we've been able to have that with them. 
we've been able to be very transparent in who we are and what we will not compromise in. And there hasn't been a fight or a pushback or let's ignore uh, the elephant in the room. And, you know, you get that a lot, um, especially I'll say any group of color gets that a lot. Um, and they completely understand really their responsibility to a group of people like us. Um, and that's what I truly, really um, admire, you know, about working with them and the people that I'm working with. I mean, the people that I'm working directly with are, are their top leaders, their C-suite team, all of the VPs. Those are the people that I work with on the day to day. Um, and we have amazing conversations. Um, they've come out many of times to, to just really be a part of our community um, and to learn more about who we are. Um, and they have really showed up in the times that we need. Um, you know, we had Indigenous Peoples Day last year. Um, you know, they were they were a big part of that. Um, I know that they have they have done some things with our our wellness department, making a vast amount of large donations there. Understanding that a lot of our departments are grant based, and you know, um, it really is incumbent upon our community to to have this economic. Um, development uh, to be able to provide revenue streams to our community so we can expand those departments to fulfill the needs. But right now we're grant-based, these departments, or donation-based. And we don't always see large donations from corporations coming into our community like that. I mean, you see us, we're, we're having fundraisers or we're doing these different types of things. We're trying to get all the attention that we can. And the most uh, wealthiest part of the country, um, and so here our partners take it upon themselves to understand that and take, um, and they do something towards that. Especially during like, Native American Heritage Month, Missing, Murdered Indigenous Women's Day, they are paying attention to what's happening in Indian Country, and we're having these dialogues with humans that work for a corporation, and that is a part of our partnership. That's our responsibility in the social equity partnership, right? They're gonna come with the intellectual property on how to structure um, a business in industry. Um, but we still have intellectual property of our connection to the plant, <laughs> just not at that magnitude. So here you're bringing two different worlds together just in general. And I think that this is a great example really for the world to be able to see. Because um, a lot of times people want to come in as if we don't know what we're doing. I've heard many different suggestions um, from many different leaders, um, you know, in the state of New York or, or in surrounding towns on what they suggest we do and how we should do it because it could be better this way. Versus let's see how we can sit down and how can we learn from you? What's the best way for you all to go forward and you lead the charge and we will provide the resources. And that's exactly how Tilt has kind of come in. I have a very close relationship with Gary Santo um, and we have these different types of discussions. And when sometimes because things are not fully understood, um, they step back and they say, well, show us, we'll teach us, you know, send us something to read, you know, who is the best point of contact or what would you suggest? And vice versa, you know, when, mm -hmm. when there's things that we need to understand, um, you know, they have, you know, been able to um, provide many different opportunities for us to be able to provide resources for our tribe before we have doors open. Um, and so I think that 
um, that part is really going to be exciting, especially as we um, expound upon or expand more job opportunities. I feel like more tribal members will also begin to have that day-to-day working relationship with Tilt. Um, and I think, like, again, I think that that's going to be a great model for other companies throughout all industries, but also other nations and governments to see how this type of thing can actually happen, you know, but we know that the pressure's on. We know everybody's watching. We know everybody's like, how, what's going on? How are they, is it working? You know, we know that. And, um, and we, and both sides take that seriously too, because we have a responsibility for people to know um, that we want to do this with, with kind hearts in, in a good way. So while we have you guys, um, there were a couple of other issues we wanted to touch on before we let you go. And one is the recent protest that took place at um, Cooper's Beach in Southampton Village to highlight um, the nation's ongoing uh, attempt to get Southampton Village to grant um, beach parking um, to the tribe free of charge to tribe members. Um, Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, Brian, let me ask you, uh, just flat out, I think the argument, uh, you know, the, the counter argument to that I've heard is that Southampton Village residents pay taxes, and this is one of the benefits they get is paying taxes. They get free access to the beach. The, the nation, the, the territory's borders are outside the village, and that doesn't take place. Um, why, why should um, nation members get this free access to the village beaches. I just want to start out by saying, because I think this needs to be said, it's not that I'm shying away from the, the, or not taking leadership initiative on this. I just want to note that this has really been from the impetus of it years ago with Ms. Deonnie Brown, a tribal Mm -hmm. member led uh, issue um, that leadership is taking up. And obviously we're in contact with the mayor's office, but this is something that happened organically. Um, it's something that a lot of tribal members feel very strongly about. And uh, it also has, I mean, not that we want to get into litigation. I hope it doesn't go that way. This also has precedent in the Supreme Court. Um, our, our treaties with the village is what I mean, the state of New York or before that, the colony um, of New York basically laid out, even though we lost land, we still had access to the ocean as well as fishing and hunting rights. Um, they still respect our fishing and hunting rights because we don't have to pay for our licenses for fishing and hunting. We get them free. Um, one of the aspects that the village will say is that, sure, they're not residents as well. I think that's you know technically true, but that's, that's one of the bone of contentions because with the town, you can get a beach permit, even though you have to pay for it, it's dramatically lower because we're town residents. Um, they don't even consider us village residents. I think there should be some kind of special exception for that, seeing how they wouldn't even have the village if it wasn't for the gift that Shinnecott gave um, on that. So I think that's offensive, first of all. And I understand the technicality, yeah, who border, but that's that's ridiculous. They have a Native American on their seal. Um, that is obviously Shinnecott. Um, but if we did go to get a license or something like that, it would cost us $500, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, also, I understand some of the arguments that's being made because, look, I've talked with uh, former Mayor Epley on this issue. I'm in contact with uh, Mr. Jesse Warren, Mayor Warren. So I'm, I'm very much aware um, that the village position is that not only um, do the tax dollars 
they get beach access, but tax dollars go to the maintaining of the parking lot and the maintaining of the beach. And that's one of the sticking points that I think the mayor's office, both uh, under Mr. Warren and also under Mr. Epley, are very um, entrenched. I don't want to say entrenched. They're not going to move off of that position. Um, and I think that drives a lot of the village residents' opposition to the idea is the fact that their tax dollars go into maintaining the beach and the parking lot. Where Shinnecock comes in is obviously, don't even talk about the last couple of hundred years of theft and things of that nature. I'll just talk about just recently um, with some of the things that um, go counter. We can't even build an own sign. And I know that doesn't have to do with the doors. It's an overall, uh, I would say, uh, an overall pattern of economic oppression for the Shinnecocks, as well as trying to roll back a lot of these things that we were entitled to, um, not just inherently entitled to under treaty laws, entitled to unencumbered access to the ocean. So the argument, and I know I'm getting a little into legal weeds here, because this, if you look, I, I could send you some uh, background information on some court cases that went all the way to the Supreme Court, talking about what does unencumbered, un un unencumbered access mean, or unobstructed access to the ocean means. They put a parking lot in front of our access to the beach. So, I mean, legally, we have a sound argument. I don't really want to engage in litigation. I don't want it to go that far. But if we have to, that's what we'll do. Our tribal members are very passionate about this. They feel very deeply and committed. And the leadership's responsibility is to take that passion and try to make some kind of arrangement, or I don't want to say arrangement, but, uh, you know, it's our job to go to the powers that be in the village and try to work this out. And I, I would say, I will say that Jesse is, at least with, on the leadership level, I know he hasn't gotten back to some of the organizers, and I feel that he should, has been in contact with us, and we are setting up a meeting between the council and the village board to try to find some kind of middle ground, if there is any middle ground to be had. Is there room for a compromise? Is there, if if they came to you with some kind of re reduced rate permit or whatever, or would that still be offensive? Would that be? Yeah, like in any community, Shinnecock has varied, very, very various opinions about things. Uh, so I'm always trying to bring back something to see what the tribal membership is. There was uh, some kind of uh, compromise that, uh, Mayor Epley had proposed, I'm not going to get into that because it wasn't made public, but um, that was rejected by the vast majority of the organizers at the time. Um, there have been things thrown around in this particular instance, and I don't want to get into that either because I don't want to really, you know, blow up the negotiations uh, by getting too far into the weeds on that. Um, but I think there is, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to translate to tribal membership. Right. Um, again, we all have different opinions about it. I can say this, it's up to the tribal member. Um, the leadership is not going to take a position that's counter um, to our general membership at all. We are going to support them and we're going to do our best to make sure um, that this uh, this struggle that's been going on for quite some time is, is rectified. You, know, I, you took part in the protest activities um, Brian makes the point that this is an issue that really came out of um, the nation's membership, that, that it, it really was, it was an organic issue that came up. Um, and I remember Diani uh, Brown, who's a former press employee, and, and I think she's really started this fight 
uh, when she worked with us. And I, and I do think she was sort of on her own when it started, but it's very clearly an emotional issue for, for Shinnecock Nation members, isn't it? Yeah, I'd just like to say that I wasn't at the protest. I went to the ocean to pray. I see. Anything else that's taken place, I don't even think we have the word protest in our language. I just want to mm. say that for the record. Mm. Um, I was there at the prayer. I led a prayer and, and, and that's what I did. I actually paddled a conscious point in the morning about 6 a, um, 8 a.m. and I lead a, um, a canoe tour there. And it felt amazing because that day I got up at sunrise, put kayaks and canoes at Conscious Point, led a tour giving the, the indigenous perspective of the first contact people from Conscious Point and got dressed in prayer in my traditional canoe outfit, which women actually wore uh, long breech cloths. We didn't wear um, skirts um, when we were accessing the ocean or were accessing the water. We had long breech gloves and I got dressed right there at Conscious Point and drove the historical route from Conscious Point to Cooper's Beach. And Diani um, called me, hmm, I don't even know, years ago when this whole thing started because at the time I was working as a researcher at National Pequot Museum, which is the largest indigenous museum in the world. Um, and my background is, is history. Um, and so I found that original deed that John Cooper signed with our relatives. And everything that Brian stated is in that original uh, treaty. Um, and since then, essentially with, with, with what we know, and this is why it's so emotional, is because what we do understand, and I think anybody in law understands that the highest law of the land or the supreme law of the land is treaty law but it's also the most expensive law to rescind. So a lot of times what happens is there are different things that are created over top of it. And no one talks about that original treaty, but I brought that to Diani at that time because she knew that I, I, I had access to it. And, and since then, that has really been something that I think opened a can of a lot of emotions for a lot of different people. The day that I was there before we started the prayer, um, I spoke about how great of swimmers most Shinnecock people are. Uh, I think my mother and so and many of them, they learned how to swim in the canal, which is something that we dug out with our hands. Our ancestors dug that canal out. That ocean is where a lot of us young people swim, but after five o'clock when the tide starts to get high. And if you go there at that time, you do know that it's not the same that it is during the day. And for anyone to tell us that it has to deal with beach cleanup, we are the original stewards of the land. That's another reason why it gets emotional because it's almost saying that we're gonna come and trash the very same beach that we taught people to wail out of. It actually becomes extremely emotional um, to the point where you feel like crying because we have also lost relatives at that ocean in Hurricane 38. And it was our very same people that helped to clean the beach up after Hurricane 38 because we could paddle from the neck and our boats or row in our actual boats over to help the wealthy clean up their mess. And so I think that when we get into um, understanding the access and, and, and I think Brian used the word incumbent um, and not being able to access, right? 
we have to think about if we have been genetically tied to these lands and we no longer have access to the very same lands and waters that we are genetically tied to, it, 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 it could be a genocide to our own spirits and our connection to it. We hold prayer ceremonies there. We hold birthing ceremonies there. We hold burial ceremonies there. We hold whaling ceremonies there. We paddle. I paddle. I've paddled across the, the Puget Sound. I've paddled across the Long Island Sound. And if I want to paddle in the Cooper's Beach, what would I do? I would leave from the Oyster Project on Shinnecock, portage my canoe over that small little bit of land and put it in the ocean. Now, if, I, if my elders needed to see that, they would need to park their car there and access that. We have elders that have not been able to access that ocean. So we're only able to hear stories of them accessing that. And so that day that we went there to pray, it was beautiful to see elders get out of their car and, and access the ocean. And I can't even remember the last time I sat there and, and was able to do that. Um, and I think that that's emotional, I think for anybody that's local from there, because imagine not being able to access a place that your families have always been there. And if it's a tax reason, I think that it just, be, it, it again becomes emotional because how can a tribe that is doing everything they can to provide food and housing and, and health benefits to their nation pay someone else so that the people that are actually not understanding anything about ocean sustainability, <laughs> and that's something that we are doing with the Shinnecock Kelp Farms, our Oyster Projects, um, ecotourism, all of these different types of things are helping to sustain the very ocean um, that, that we all benefit from. Um, I think that that becomes emotional. So what we did was we, we had a prayer and then we walked down to the actual ocean and we put our prayers in the ocean. And it was at that moment that the ocean itself started to roar um, because she felt our prayers. And that's not something I think uh, most, most laws don't put that into context, but what was also put into and is being put into law on November, 20, on November 15, 2021, Joe Biden had a memorandum that talked about indigenous ecological knowledge. And us not being able to access the ocean is not recognizing that memorandum. Clearly an emotional issue for you guys. Brian, we'd love to have you back at some point and talk about some of the other uh, economic development things that are happening. Before we go, big powwow this year, right? Yeah, huge, huge. Um, so I'll, I'll do a quick uh, powwow plug before I go. Um, yeah, I mean, we are, you talk about cultural pride and what uh, Sinead was saying, which I think you just created, spiritual genocide. I, I like that um, because it is, that is, when people say genocide, and not to get too far off track, they just think of death, your body of death or killing people or something like that. But the spirit is important. So on that note, I would say the spiritual uplifting uh the the uplifting spirit of the powwow which basically gives us fuel for the year a lot of tribal members fuel for the year that good medicine is finally coming back this summer in full force uh it's going to be a great event 
I hope that everybody can join us again. We've missed you guys. Um, we missed uh, we missed inviting people to our territory to take part in our culture, to be on those power grounds. Um, it'll be a four day event. We'll still do social, uh, you know, be responsible um, with, we're not requiring masks, but we will be, you know, having stations if people want to wear masks, we'll provide them. And we're just looking for people, especially our brothers and sisters across uh, Indian country coming in and uh, reconnecting in the circle. It's going to be an amazing event and we hope that everybody can join us on that weekend. Great. Well, thank you both of you um, for coming on Brian and Shanae. It was really great to, even if it was virtually spend a little time with you and um, yeah, we'll definitely get you back here to talk about, cause you're going to have a lot to talk about in the next couple of years, I think. I'm always available. Uh, and if I had more time, I would answer more questions today. Um, I think it's very important that we do get our narrative out there and we get the facts out there. Um, I think over the years, it's been a lot better. Um, as far as people understanding what we're doing instead of jumping to these crazy conclusions. So anytime you guys invite us, I always make time for you guys and I truly appreciate the forum. Yeah, very appreciate it back. Thank you. Thank you all for what you're doing because you're giving, you're allowing people to to hear our voice. And we don't see that a lot. So thank you so much. And we hope to see you yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll be there. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Today. I think that's going to be a company outing. I think. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> okay. Let's be exactly. All righty. All right. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.